the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and powerful stories than The Athletic. Download the app, personalize it with your favorite teams and leagues, and get up to date, real time, ad free exclusive content. For all of this and plenty, plenty more, visit theathletic.com slash spottrack, S-P-O-T-R-A-C, for 40% off your first year subscription today. That's theathletic.com slash spottrack. My name is Mike Chinetti. Third show of the week. It's getting to be that time of year, so happy to uh, get in front of the mic a couple extra times when necessary. Certainly Tom Brady's retirement this week warranted that. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a education open here versus diving deep into one specific story. But it's kind of a piggyback off of Brady because I had a lot of questions and a lot of kind of understandable complaints when I started to pump some information out about Brady's contract and things like that. So off the top here, I'm going to go through dead cap. 101, what is it? Why is it here? What are the different variations of it? You know, what are all the buzzwords you're going to start to hear over the next couple of weeks as we approach the 2022 NFL league year, March 16th. So I'll uh, hopefully answer as many questions as possible with that. And then back into the show, one of our favorites, Emily Karen from Sportico. It's a big week for women's sports. I mean, I believe yesterday was actually National Women's and Girls Sports Day. So there's that. <laughs> but a new NWSL CBA, the first ever, the largest contract in league history, a $75 million investment to the WNBA, a $25 million internal investment to pro women's hockey. Plenty of stuff happening with Athletes Unlimited. It's just a big situation across the board. Good news. Money being pumped in, TV rights being signed, good contracts coming, some better situations, hopefully, for women's sports, and hopefully more eyeballs because it's just as fun to watch in a lot of cases. So Emily's on the back end of this show with plenty of good information from Sportico and herself. All right, as promised. This is about as nerdy as I can get, but I know it's it's kind of a an obligation of mine every single year because this is not easy stuff. It's unlike any other league in this regard. Uh, dead cap is ugly. It is really hard to figure out. A lot of people just don't care enough to actually put in the time, and I totally understand that. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing, <laughs> and I'm happy to answer those questions at SpotTrack. Couple of things with SpotTrack and dead cap. Um, if you're looking at a page, so let's go to Michael Thomas. Okay, the wide receiver for the Saints. We have a, especially on our desktop version, if you're looking at Michael Thomas's contract on your computer, on your PC, on your Mac, we have a red X next to every single year of a contract. And if you click that red X, we're going to show you all the, most of the, I should say, most of the dead cap scenarios for a player. If he gets traded now, if he gets released now, if that happens after June 1st, which I'll get to in a second, the dead cap ramifications and the current year savings, cap savings for that player based on that scenario. So we're trying to lay this out as much as possible. That little tool is useful, especially in a quick in a quick fix to see a trade or release. Um, we do have dead cap in a column on the contract, so you can see exactly how much the total number is. But as I'm going to tell you in a bit here, you know, the total number can be split up. The total number can be reduced if some of that is base salary. There's unfortunately it's not as easy as this is the number, this is what it is, no matter what. I wish I could tell you that's what it is, but there's a lot more iterations to everything. So 
just in terms of how you're reading the contract on the website, yes, there is a dead cap column. Yes, there is a red X that gives you more scenarios, more of a deep dive into that dead cap figure. But um, hopefully you'll take away some more understanding of that with what I'm about to tell you. And uh, you can start to answer some of those questions yourself. But please, at Trek on Twitter, I'm happy to answer specific questions. You know, what happens if player X, Devin McCourty retires? What happens? You know, things like that. Hit me up. I'm happy to quickly give you an answer back on that. And uh, we'll all kind of learn this thing together. What is dead cap? Dead cap is unallocated salary or prorated bonus. That didn't answer anything, right? I have to give you examples. Okay. In terms of NFL contracts, a player signs a contract five years, 100 million with a $20 million signing bonus. The only thing that matters to you right now are five years and $20 million signing bonus. That player gets $20 million cash, sometimes all at one time, sometimes split up over two years based on deferred money. That's cash. For cap purposes with the NFL, the NFL allows teams to take that bonus, pay it out cash, but for the cap purposes, spread it out over a maximum of five years. So 20 divided by five becomes 4 million per year. 4 million each of the next five years hits the cap. Whatever cap has not hit the cap yet, right? Future, that's dead cap. So if it's a brand new contract signed last March, five years, 100 million signed last March, $20 million bonus has been paid out, but only 4 million of that bonus has hit the cap in 2021, which means there's $16 million worth of dead cap to that bonus still with the team. Okay. So that's example one. That's the easiest example. That also qualifies for restructure bonuses. So whenever teams take salary and convert it into signing bonus to reduce the cap hit, it's the same scenario. They can prorate that cap over a maximum of five years, which by the way, is a good time to talk about void years. It's why they're used. They're dummy years, but they're built in to allow that proration to go five years in many cases. So Rob Gronkowski signed a one-year, I believe, $8 million contract this past season with the Buccaneers. But if you look at Trek, there's five rows, one actual year, four dummy void years for the purpose of taking his signing bonus, a $6.25 million signing bonus, you know, 80% of that contract and split it over a five-year span, which meant that an eight-year deal only accounted for $3 million of cap to the Buccaneers last year. They did this with many contracts, Levante David, Tom Brady, uh, more and more and more. So if you look right now, many of these players are expired. They are pending free agents. However, they hold a cap hit on the Buccaneers 2022 roster right now. That cap hit is in orange on spot track because it designates that it's a void year. Um, so five years, four of them void years for Gronkowski. That means as of right now, he has a $5 million cap charge for 2022. It's a dead cap charge built in for those four void years. So that's the simplest version of dead cap, a signing bonus that's spread out over five years for cap purposes. It's bonus divided by five in many cases, or bonus divided by however many years the actual contract was signed for. So if teams don't use void years and it's a two-year contract and a $10 million signing bonus, it's going to be five years of cap in the first year, five years of cap in the second year, and we go from there. So it really, and by the way, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to that. Teams can use void years or they, or they don't have to. Some teams are choosing not to still 
because they don't want to have that leftover dead cap if and when the player is off the roster. They want to be able to control that dead cap a little bit more. I think you'll see a lot of teams continue to use those void years because it really is, you know, with the cap going up so much more, dead cap is becoming less and less of a problem, especially if you can kind of spread it out a little bit. And I'm going to get to the Gronkowski situation in, in a second with how they can actually reduce that $5 million. But example one, signing bonus, prorated over five years, kind of the simplest version of dead cap, hopefully the easiest one for you to understand. Um, there is a bit of a tangent with this, okay? And it's a, it's a point of contention. Every free agency, we have to really you know speak to agents and understand how these contracts are structured because sometimes you'll hear that the player gets a roster bonus with his new contract that's fully guaranteed. Now, a, a roster bonus that is that is 100% actually, truly, definitely, certainly 100% fully guaranteed at signing is to be treated like a signing bonus, okay? So you may see a roster bonus on, on, on that's you know labeled in the notes, $10 million, $12 million, but it's actually broken out over five years. In those specific cases, it's not, it's not common, but we have seen it. You'll see a player get a roster bonus cash in the first year, treated as a signing bonus, prorated over the life of the contract. So just another version of this. It could be an actual signing bonus. It could be a restructured signing bonus, meaning converted base salary into bonus, or it can be a fully guaranteed at signing roster bonus, which has to be prorated like a signing bonus. The last version is an option bonus. And we're seeing more and more of these teams use this, especially with you know edge rushers, major cornerbacks, certainly the quarterback contracts, the big, big contracts is instead of putting a $65, $70 million signing bonus on year one, they'll make it 30 in year one of that signing bonus over five years. Then they'll throw a second year option bonus of 30, 35 million. They both kind of look and smell and feel the same way in terms of cap purposes. So Carson Wentz, for instance, had, a, had an initial signing bonus that prorated over five years. He then had a second year option bonus that prorated over five more years. So, you know, for three years there, there's legitimate crossover between two bonuses that are paid out. So that's when the cap gets ugly and the dead cap gets very ugly because you're counting on a total of 70 million over two bonuses spread out over a total of six years, one through five and then two through six. So you can start to see where dead cap really starts to pile up from different variances. The last version of this is just straight up base salary, all right? And you know, you're gonna see a lot of contracts signed over the next couple of weeks that have two, sometimes maybe three years of, of base salaries fully guaranteed right out of the gate. Okay, so let's for all intents say that Devontae Adams signs five for 125, okay? And that comes with three years of salary that's 100% guaranteed, all right? it's. 10 million this year, 15 million next year, 20 million the year after that. All right. So in terms of dead cap, if he gets a $50 million signing bonus with that, that's 50 plus 10 plus 15 plus 20. That's all dead cap right now because it's either a bonus that prorates or guaranteed salary that's fully guaranteed for cap and cash right now. Okay. That all adds up to be one big dead cap number. And certainly that goes down as salary is paid or as cap hits the, you know, as dead cap hits the cap. So next year, that 
$50 million signing bonus will be decreased by $10 million in terms of the proration that hits the cap. And the $10 million guaranteed salary for this year will come off. So that's the math that kind of works as we go here. So hopefully that's a, that's a decent precursor on how we add up dead cap. Now, what happens when we have to actually eat the crow and take on the dead cap, right? Because of a trade, because of a release, because of a retirement. There's two really specific ways that this can work, and it's based on a date, okay? June 1st is the trigger date for dead cap in this league. Things that happen before June 1st, any of it, the retirement, the trade, the release. Things that happen before that June 1st date means all the dead cap accelerates into right now. Okay. So I guess let's use Devonte Adams. Let's say it's five for 125. I gave you the, uh, you know, 45 million in base salary plus the $50 million signing bonus, right? 95 million guaranteed at signing. That's pretty crazy. Um, let's say for some reason after year one, so, so next year, next March, they got to move on. Okay. And let's say they're going to release him for our first example. Now, if they say we're releasing him March 17th, the first day of 2023's league year, that means 40 million of that signing bonus proration plus the $15 million salary plus the $20 million salary or $75 million worth of dead cap would hit the Green Bay Packers 2023 salary cap all at once because it was done before June 1st, because there was four years of proration on the bonus left, because there were two years of fully guaranteed salary left. That equaled 75 in our example here. If the same scenario, he's released June 2nd or designated a post-June 1st release. Now we get the different discussion, okay? Now any of that bonus proration that isn't in this year, but in future years, so in this case, 30, three years of 10, that can now stay into next year. So anything this year, the 10 of that bonus, plus any future guaranteed salary, this year, next year, however much future, that's fully guaranteed, stays in this year, and any future bonus probation can push out to next year. So in this Devontae Adams case, he's released June 2nd, 2023. 35 million of salary, plus 10 million from that signing bonus would stick in 2023 or a $45 million dead cap hit. And then the remaining 30 would push to 2024. So that's where the split comes in. Okay. Any guaranteed salary plus any bonus proration from that year only stays in that year. Anything future bonus proration can move out to the next year and split it up. So 75 becomes 35 and 30 instead of 75 all at once. So that's the deep dive into what post June 1st means. Now, obviously with a trade, that's different because the, the losing team in the trade, Green Bay in this case, let's say Devonte Adams is traded March 17th, 2023 out of this fake contract. Obviously the guaranteed salary would go to the new team. So you wouldn't have $75 million of dead cap anymore. You'd only have the, the signing bonus proration that stuck, that stuck with you. Why does it have to stick with you? Because you paid it to them. It's already a paid out bonus that was paid by the Green Bay Packers to Devontae Adams. The fact that 
40 million of that $50 million signing bonus hasn't hit the cap yet is not Devontae Adams' fault. It's just how NFL contracts work. And it's something that the Green Bay Packers have to atone to. Okay. They've only allocated 10 million of that 50 million cash payment to their salary cap. So now they have to eat the, the pay up from a cap perspective. So if he's traded March 17th, 2023, it's a $40 million dead cap hit to them immediately. Four years of signing bonus left stays with Green Bay. The $35 million of guaranteed salary goes to the new team. And that's their dead cap now to deal with and their guaranteed cash to deal with. So obviously, you can see how a trade can be more advantageous in many ways than an outright release in terms of dead cap when there's guaranteed salary. That's really it. That's really it. You know, we can get fancy and say that, oh, you know, they, they had trouble trading him, so they had to convert some of that guaranteed salary into new signing bonus, which actually added more dead cap to Green Bay. That happens. It's going to happen, I think, this year in a couple instances, maybe with like a Sam Darnold, maybe with a Baker Mayfield. It's going to happen. Um, but if you think about it with how I started this conversation, that's just a restructured signing bonus. So you can then put that into numbers. So let's say it's a $15 million guaranteed salary, but you know the, tr- the team who wants to acquire him doesn't only wants to deal with $5 million of it. So now you're taking $10 million of it and you're prorating that over the remainder of the, sal- of, the, of the contract. And now that becomes part of that prorated dead bonus. Okay? So an extra $10 million is split up. And if you do this before June 1st, you're taking everything on, the 40 plus the new 10. So it's $50 million of dead cap to the Packers. If you do this after June 1st, it would be, you know, $12 million this year and... 38 million the year after that. Okay. And that's how it would work. So the June 1st date is very, very important because of the, it allows teams to say, I'll take on my current dead cap. I'll move all my future dead cap into next year. It's a decent split. It's becoming less and less popular for a couple of reasons. A, like I just mentioned, dead cap isn't scaring teams like it used to. I mean, we have a team in the Super Bowl right now as we speak that took on a significant amount of dead cap for Jared Goff and you know pumped in a quarterback in Matthew Stafford who basically had the same contract. So they basically doubled up on the quarterback pay this year, went from 26 to basically 50-something with Stafford plus Goff's dead cap, and they did just fine. Right? The Philadelphia Eagles made the postseason with a 33-and-change dead cap hit for Carson Wentz, who played for the Indianapolis Colts this year. It's not scaring teams off anymore. The cap is rising at a decent enough rate. And, you know, teams are building enough through the draft where they're getting so much value on rookie contracts that they can waste eight, nine, ten million dollars here and there on removing some players via release, via trade, things like that, in, in, in terms of dead cap. So five years ago, this conversation was you've got to do everything possible to reduce your dead cap hits. You know, in teams like Philly and, and New Orleans who are constantly restructuring and adding dead cap every single year. We're kind of outliers in that regard. And now everybody's starting to do that. Everybody's starting to realize that the cap's going to jump maybe $30 million next year, that the league is, is moving at a rapid pace, financially speaking, that can account for all these mistakes, even big quarterback mistakes, the golf contract, the Wentz, the Wentz contract. Take your risks. Understand your mistakes. Get out when you need to. If you can do so via trade, that, that generally helps your financial situation and certainly your draft capital. But that's a... That to me seems like the, the way to go. Think less about dead cap. Think more about roster construction and especially with the quarterback position, whatever it takes. 
whatever it takes, you know? So I don't think teams are going to nickel and dime these kind of situations anymore. Um, there's a better com- comfort with this from, from a GM standpoint. And like I said, they're being a lot more frivolous with this. So it's a good time for everybody to kind of get on the same page with this, because I do think you're going to see some more teams pile up dead cap this year. You know, Tampa Bay might have to certainly with Brady's situation, they're going to have to. And if I can use that as a final example, um, I did so last time on the show, I want to reiterate it here with this dead cap conversation. Unfortunately, and this is the question I got a million times, you know, why if somebody retires, does dead cap continue to hit the roster? Well, hopefully you know the answer to that already based on what I've said, but I'll reiterate it here. None of Tom Brady's salary is staying with the Buccaneers. They do not owe him any more cash at this point in terms of future base salary and things like that. Um, His $9 million salary would have guaranteed in a couple of days here. But regardless, even if that had vested and then he retired in March, he wouldn't see that salary. It would have voided the guarantee because he's walking away from the game. Um, The reason he has dead cap and 32 million of it to boot is that we're talking about roster and signing bonuses that were paid off immediately. All right. Tom Brady had had a $20 million signing bonus. He also had a $20 million fully guaranteed roster bonus, which as I mentioned before, is treated as a signing bonus. So essentially it's a $40 million initial bonus over five years equals 8 million of cap a year. Only 8 million of that is hit. Okay. Which leaves us 32 million left, which is why if you listen to the last show, what I've projected, and I've actually gone and done this on spot track. So if you look at Tom Brady on spot track, I'm assuming the, the scenario that I laid out last time, which is they're going to carry him on the active roster until June 2nd, because they don't want to take a $32 million dead cap hit right now. Okay. And rightfully so they're still at halfway decent contending team. You know, if they bring the right quarterback into the system in 2022, I think there's, especially in a division that is an absolute disaster from a quarterback standpoint, maybe from a total roster standpoint, you know, this is probably the betting favorite still with a halfway decent quarterback at the helm. So they want to, they want to take care of their cap right now so they can bring back Godwin, maybe add a few pieces, possibly bring back Fournette on a decent contract. Uh, they don't want to just be taking a hit right now as if they're rebuilding and certainly a $32 million hit for Brady would be doing that. So I've reduced all the cash down as much as possible on his contract because he's not going to pay it. He's not going to get it. So there's no need for them to carry it because he's not going to see it. So that $8.9 million salary is now a league minimum 1.12 minimum. I just threw 8 million of it away, eight and a half million of it away. It's gone. That $1.5 million roster bonus gone. He wasn't going to get paid it anyway. His $1.8 million of, of likely incentives because of his ridiculous final season productivity gone. He's never going to see it anyway. So from a cash perspective, it's just the 1.12 million, the vet minimum salary. Okay. And that lowers his cap hit right now to 9.12 million, which is much more easy to carry than 20.2 million or whatever it was before. So they can carry this 9.12 million until June 2nd. And then at that point, they'll place him on the reserve retired list, which means they still own his rights. He's still a member of the Buccaneers from a semantical standpoint. But now, as I mentioned before with our signing bonus examples, the 32 million at 8 million per year over the next four years from a dead cap standpoint means 
Retired Tom Brady accounts for $8 million this year to the Buccaneers and $24 million next year to the Buccaneers. So an $8 million dead cap hit for you know the runner-up of the MVP, in my opinion, and the greatest of all time. You can handle that. And you can say the $24 million next year is going to hurt. Yep. But like I said, if that salary cap is two thirty, it's going to hurt a hell of a lot less. So we have a pretty good example of in Brady here of all the different notes outside of guaranteed salary being kind of given to us here in terms of dead cap examples, a guaranteed, a fully guaranteed roster bonus, uh, a signing bonus that prorates with void years, which is what we have three void years, a retirement, a pre June 1st retirement that, that I believe they will carry until post June 1st. So they can split up that 32 million of dead cap into 8 million and 24 million respectively. All right. I've talked enough. Any questions, um, please hit me up at SpotTrack or info at SpotTrack.com for email. I'm happy to go deep dive into any of your specific scenarios. You know, for the play on your favorite team who you think might be released, might be traded, and you don't understand the scenarios financially, let me know. I'm happy to answer those kind of questions at any point in time. Let's talk some women's sports with Emily Karen. All right. You've heard her many times on the show before. She's back with some big kind of breaking women's sports news. Emily, Karen, welcome back. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. You bet. How are, how's life at Sportico? I see uh, plenty of news every single day. I get a couple of newsletters every day and plenty of tweets and uh, I imagine life is good. Yeah, there's no shortage of uh, news for us to cover. That's for sure. Right. And you kind of steer towards the women's stuff, which has been, you know, exponentially getting more and more important, powerful and financially invested. And that's kind of the discussion this morning. Let's start with the WNBA and uh, kind of lay out the breaking news this morning. Sure. Um, yeah, big news for the WNBA this morning. They just closed on $75 million. Um, that capital was raised from a mix of um, existing NBA and WNBA owners. And then, you know, a couple of new faces, <clears throat> excuse me, that they brought into the fold as well. Um, Nike, who's been a longtime sponsor of the WNBA, is one of their top tier partners, is now uh, an equity partner. Obviously, you know, through this investment, they have an equity stake in the league now. Um, Condoleezza Rice, uh, Dee Haslam, who's co-owner of the Cleveland Browns, um, Lorraine Powell-Jobs, who... Uh, is, you know, known for many things, but one of them is she's also a uh, co-owner of Monumental Sports and Entertainment, which owns um, most of the DC sports franchises, the Wizards, the Capitals, the Mystics, um, and and any sports team, if I'm not mistaken. So a ton of folks coming in um, and a ton of, you know, existing owners also chipping in. And the league is optimistic that this will really help them give, uh, you know, get get capital and get cash quickly that they can use to kind of kickstart some growth. So, uh, you know, forgive me for my kind of naivety with this, but does this devalue the current ownerships at all? Or do you think it does? Okay. Okay. So can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Great question. Um, so how the, the, I think people have been confused for a while about how, uh, who owns the WNBA, right? Because the WNBA, um, has, has long been known that it's part owned by the NBA. Um, so how the, the breakdown actually works is that what, it used to be was that 50% of the league itself um, was owned by team owners. So the 12 team owners, um, you know, and obviously each team owners, owners, when I say that is not necessarily just one person, it could be two people, three people, a small group, whatnot. But um, 
50% of the ownership were just divided amongst the 12 ownership groups in the WNBA. And then the other 50% was held by NBA owners. There is a little bit of overlap there. Five WNBA teams are also owned by um, NBA owners. A lot, most of those, actually, I think all of them are in shared markets, right? You think about like Indiana with the Pacers and the Fever, those kinds of cases. Um, and essentially, everybody's equity stake was diluted equally on a pro rata basis um, to make room for these new investors. So, you know, those owners who have overlap between the two leagues, obviously they're, they still have more equity than say someone who only owns an NBA or only owns a WNBA team, um, but everyone was diluted on an, on an equal basis. Sounds like good news. I mean, the 26th season, I, I have to imagine there were a lot of people that didn't think it would get this far. How much has the NBA helped? Can, can you kind of give us an, a global surface view on that? And is that something that really, you know, with these other leagues and, you know, I hate to bring the men's side of it into it, but has it been a big, big boost, especially early on? I think the financial support has been huge, especially in helping getting the league off the ground. Um, you know, it, like you said, we're, we're heading into the 26th season and Kathy Engelbert came on in 2019, so not that long ago. And she came in and said, you know, I need to turn this into a profitable business that right. is self-sustaining. And that's long been her goal. Um, you know, when you think about 2019, that was what their 23rd season and they still weren't quite at that point yet. Um, and obviously we've seen a ton of momentum behind women's sports in terms of uh, kind of an influx of sponsor dollars and new media exposure and whatnot in, in recent years. But um, there was still a lot of work to be done. And I think the NBA involvement definitely gave um, the league a little bit of a, a runway to work with. You know, you look at a sport like professional women's hockey and you look at, um, you know, the NWHL, which is now the PHF and other iterations of professional women's hockey in the U.S. and, um, you know, it's definitely been more of a challenge for them and something that they've long fought for and advocated for is support from the NHL, which they have not yet gotten. And whether that's financial support or even, you know, publicity and promotional support, partnerships in the sense of working together to, you know, tie games together that could help, you know, make more of a platform, um, perhaps for some of the women's games, anything like that um, is something that hockey has long been looking for from the NHL and hasn't gotten. And on the flip side, um, the NBA has definitely supported the WNBA in that sense. And I think another thing that's overlooked is just in terms of infrastructure, right? The WNBA league office can be housed sort of within the NBA, which means when you think about having to hire out you know, a full-scale HR department or PR department. Um, there's a lot of overlap there where, you know, some of the folks who do PR and the NBA side also help out on the WNBA side. So in terms of just personnel and infrastructure, I think it's also been beneficial. Yeah, smooth transition. I was going to go hockey next. Uh, obviously, <laughs> you know, the women's hockey is going to be a big focal point over the next two weeks, you know, literally as we're speaking right now with USA Hockey playing in the Olympics. And you know, they, they kind of become the faces of these Olympics for a lot of people that generally don't watch any kind of women's hockey throughout the year. They recently just pumped an extra $25 million into their into their sport, kind of internally, though. There wasn't much external help with mm -hmm. that. And, and you're right, they're struggling. I'm Buffalo-based. There is a little bit of synergy between what the Buffalo Sabres are and what the Buffalo Buttes are in terms of this the women's hockey. But I can tell you right now, it's been a battle. There's been tons of turnover. There's been tons of scandal, as you know. Um, you know, you know, the, the Sabres themselves don't make enough money really to support themselves and the Buttes as a, as a one entity. So there's been a lot of split and division in terms of how the, the two entities have been run. They do have some shared facilities, which helps. I'm not sure that's the case with the other five franchises, but 
I, I don't see a lot of quick growth with this at all, even even with the boost they're going to get from these Olympics, which generally happens, right? Yeah, I think that this is a side note too, but the Buttes are also an interesting case study because um, they used to share ownership with the Sabres. That's right, and they had to split They it. were yeah. at one point, right, owned by um, Pagula, the Pagulas, uh, and then they eventually sold because there was a lot going on in, in the league internally, and I think it probably just wasn't the right time for them to get involved. But, um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting example of, you know, the Olympics are one of the few times uh, during the year, well, not every year, but... You know, we've been lucky enough that we've had Olympics two, uh, two consecutive years in a row. Um, but they're one of the rare times where women's sports off, uh, often take precedent over men's sports. And female athletes can often have a bigger platform, perhaps, than some of their male competitors. Um, and not saying that, you know, it's the case across the board, right? You look at Chloe Kim and Sean White, and they probably both have, you know, get as much exposure um, from the games. But Women's hockey definitely does um, kind of shine in moments like these. And I think the players on that team are particularly aware of that and aware of kind of the momentum that they can create, Um, whether that's by, you know, just really capitalizing on the moment when they're there and also when they come back and following up and whatnot. Um, But women's hockey domestically does not have nearly the platform that it does on the, when it's, you know, an Olympic event. And that's something that the league is definitely grappling with. I think, the influx in cash that they're seeing now was a, basically a commitment from the existing owners to invest $25 million, um, obviously split between its three different ownership groups own the six teams in the league right now, but a commitment to invest that $25 million over the next, I think it was four years. And the biggest thing there is they're just upping the salary cap. That's where most of the money is going. And then the, some of it will also go toward expanding the league and kind of growing operations. But um, upping the salary cap, I think the hope there is that they'll entice you know players to treat this more as a professional sport and be able to kind of do this full time, which has not been the case necessarily. And you know it's same model that say the PLL took when they tried to give lacrosse players a living wage where they didn't have to have a side job. Is you know if you can really professionalize the athletes and up the level of play and participation and the commitment that they have to the growth of the league, there's a thinking that that will you know reap benefits for everyone involved. And it's the right time to do it. You're going to get the Olympic bump, like you mentioned, and they've also got ESPN Plus behind them. And when they mm-hmm. also, when ESPN Plus now has professional, you know, men's hockey, the National Hockey League, and now this kind of simultaneously on, on their streaming service, which is doing very well from what I'm hearing, I think there's a real chance that, that that's really what, what happened with the WNBA, right? I mean, they eventually got the right TV partners that right. kind of coincided with things. And then the investments just kind of filled in the blanks after that. Unfortunately, that's still how things work. Everything runs through the TV networks and the streaming services, but um, it's working. So I'm, I'm hoping that there's some sustainability with what you're talking about. You mentioned the side hustle. Let's get to it. That's what the, the NWSL <laughs> was all about, right? I mean, the, there was a lot of issues with the NWSL and I'm going to keep the scandals out of it. I know you did a lot of great work on that, but we, we did get to a CBA. This is what had to happen before this season was ever going to start. Literally, that's what the players were saying. Um, we're here. We do have some some notes on that. I, I'm going to push that down a little bit because I think one thing that's being missed here, and I hope you know a little bit about it, is part of this new agreement with the, with the NWSL, the Women's Soccer League, is that the U.S. Federation is now no longer a part of this. They're two right. separate entities. So whereas an Alex Morgan or a, or a Christian Press were being paid exclusively through the Federation and maybe getting a little bit of a bump with the NWSL, that's no longer the case. They now have two separate contracts so they can live simultaneously and and hopefully make a little bit more out of that too, right? Right. 
And I think that was um, intentional. I think there was a, a hope that this A, you know, there's there's more capital coming into the NWSL, um, not in the same sense that we're seeing, you know, with this raise that the WNBA just did, but um, there's definitely some momentum in terms of sponsors and other partners. And the hope is that um, it can become a little more self-sustaining. Um, I think you also saw that, you know, increasing salaries was a priority when they added allocation money in 2020, where teams basically could purchase additional money from the league um, to pay their players above a ma- the maximum salary that the NWSL um, had stipulated for those years. So I think you're definitely right that um, there's a separation that could be viewed as kind of risky um, at the yeah. start. You yeah, know, that's, that's right, because you lose the marketability, right? Right. Um, but I think also, you know, U.S. soccer is going through its own sort of negotiations in terms of CBAs with its men's and women's national teams. And so there was a lot of overlap and perhaps in the long run, this just makes it easier for these to be kind of two separate entities with kind of clear boundaries. Um, That said, when you do look at, you know, the two highest paid players in the NWSL last year were Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, Mm -hmm. their salaries were around $250,000 a year, around a hundred thousand of that was subsidized through us soccer. So obviously that's going to change the dynamic of what's required from their team perspective, because the team is going to have to be, you know, fill in those gaps if they want to keep them at those same levels. Um, but I haven't heard that that's going to be an issue yet. No, I, I don't mean, think it will be. We'll and, and to your point, I, I also think part of this was, you know, those kind of players stepping forward and say, looking, look, the way this is working right now is is hurting our ability to fight with the U.S. Federation for our salaries because they're saying, look, you're, you're already being supplemented with this other league that you're playing in, which, which we're working with simultaneously to make sure that the scheduling works out and all that. Now there's, now there's a, a, a line in the sand and you know, what the U S men are making versus their, their MLS salaries or European salaries can have the, the women can have the same discussion. They can say, look, we get X from the NWSL and we get X from you and, and the part from you isn't strong enough. So I do think that's, it's helping their legal case in that regard as well. Um, but that's not really the NWSL's problem because you're right. They're going to have to pony up more money now. Speaking of which, <laughs> good timing. Yesterday, of course, the, the biggest NWSL contract in league history is signed. And you broke that news with Sportico early yesterday morning. And it's a name. It's Trinity Rodman, Dennis Rodman's daughter. Uh, she's in, in the middle of a heck of a college career. There's a lot of boost with her, a lot of juice. She's maybe one of the most important players to the U.S. women's national team going forward. Uh, lay out that contract for us because it's really promising in terms of where this thing could be going. Yeah, so Trinity Rodman, she obviously she plays for the Washington Spirit, which is an interesting story in and of itself, right? You talk, we don't want to get into the, the scandal stuff too right. much, but the Washington Spirit was implicated in that, which has now put them in this position where they're kind of in this uh, ownership battle. You know, who's going to actually own the team moving forward because it's not going to be the existing um, controlling owner, at the least, who's Steve Baldwin. Um, but it's interesting because those are the folks, the existing owners who are negotiating this contract um, with Trinity and her agent and her, um, her her people. But she signed a deal that is, uh, the total value is four years, $1.1 million. Uh, average annual value is just upwards of $280,000 a year. Technically, the deal is three years. That's sort of an NWSL policy. Um, but there is an option for a fourth year that they wrote in that that option will be extended as soon as she steps on the field for her first game this season. So it's almost a given that this goes the full four years. Um, right. So everything about it is unprecedented, right? I mean, it's yeah, and I think it's it's a new it's, day in, in an NWSL contracts. I mean, you talked about Morgan yeah. and Rapino being at two fifty. This blows it out of the water. Yeah. 
and obviously Morgan Rapinoe's earnings are subsidized heavily by, uh, you know, endorsement earnings and whatnot. So they're definitely taking home more than that uh, off the field as well. And obviously there's potential for Trinity there to, you know, go deeper in the endorsement and sponsorship space. But, you know, she's coming off of, I think the, one of the more unique parts that people have overlooked is she was coming off of a rookie season. She still had two years left on her rookie deal and was impressive enough in what she accomplished on the field and also helping lead the Washington spirit to the franchise's first ever championship uh, in November of last year that they tore up a rookie deal after one year and re-signed her to the biggest contract in NWSL history. I feel like that in itself is a very big kind of show of uh, support from an ownership group that, you know, has been controversial to say the least and yeah. uh, had some not so great moments, but it's a very big show of support for what, you know, the league be- or that group believes that, you know, their their young star should be paid moving forward. And there's clearly a commitment to keeping her around. It's such an important point with so many sports right now. Seriously. I mean, this is what baseball is complaining about. This is what baseball is fighting about is how do we get our 19 year old, 20 year old superstars properly compensated because they are going to become the face of the league in a minute because of social media, because of how things work. It's not just watching a four hour game anymore. It's the highlights, it's the takeaways. That's what she's about. I mean, she's a lot more than just a, a, you know, a 90 minute game superstar. There's I mean, you talk about name image likeness and the possibilities with her. It's all built into this deal, but I, I think, you know, I, I look, I take a step outside of the Washington spirit with her, Emily, because this is such good news for the league. I mean, anytime that you can, you can start the morning on a Wednesday morning and have this be your topic of conversation, which look, it's at the top of ESPN's ticker. It's kind of everywhere. That's not something this league can do very easily. So the fact that they can kind of force this, you're right, out of a rookie contract, I, I sit here, I'm certainly biased with, you know, kind of pushing how big money can be in terms of talking points. But it's just, it, there's been so many examples of it. You have to push this kind of news out there. And, you know, internally speaking, Emily, we're trying like hell to get these contracts on the website as much as possible. I want them to be talked about for the betterment yeah. of the league, not for my own good, you know, not for my own good. It's not going to move my needle too much if NWSL, you know, you know, salaries are posted out there somewhere. It's going to move their needle. It's really good for business. And I think this is a step one and what could be a turnaround for this this organization as a whole. Yeah, I think it's also interesting, too, because if I'm not mistaken, I think technically in the NWSL's bylaws, you're not allowed to publicize contract value. Yep. Obviously, yep. My job as a reporter is to find out ways to get that information, uh, make it public otherwise. But um, they'll learn. It is, <laughs> it is, yeah, it is interesting though that you know people seeing that figure and seeing that number kind of put out there, it really got their attention. That's right. Uh, and there was a See, lot of chatter. Just on saying social she media signed a contract, whatnot. Emily, it isn't going to move the needle. You have to have the numbers. You have to be able to say it's historic. You have to be able to say it's more than Alex Morgan. All the things you did in your article, right. that's what really gets the attention. And I know that that the, there's a reasons for the NWSL saying what they do. And every league starts out by saying this. You know, we have to be private to our to our athletes. It's important. The, you got to blow it up. This is the stuff that moves the needle. And I really I, I appreciate what you did for them yesterday. Thank you. All right. What else? Athletes Unlimited? Basketball now? I mean... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just exploding. I feel like that's not getting enough run. Three major sports. Is it three or four? That's four, right? Lacrosse, four. softball, basketball, volleyball. and volleyball, and all doing yeah. well. I, I've been catching these uh, kind of sporadically. This isn't competition to the WNBA, right? 
no, this is not competition with the WNBA, and I don't think they ever designed it to be that way. It's actually, um, it's an interesting kind of case study when you look at uh, the timing of it, because typically what happens is, uh, at least, especially, well, let me preface this, the WNBA's most recent CBA up their salaries significantly, up to minimum salaries, up maximum salaries, star players are getting paid significantly more than they were in the past. Um, but you still had, you know, people who are on average contracts or minimum contracts going overseas to, you know, make additional money just because it was such a lucrative opportunity for them, right? You saw last year Sue Bird, who I love. I just think she's always so candid and just always cracks me up. But um, actually, correct, it's Diana Taurasi. I'm like uh, confusing all of my women's sports people <laughs> this week because been going around in circles, but um, as Diana Taurasi joked, you know, be, having to fly home for the birth of her daughter, she chartered her own plane and she joked in a press conference after and she was basically like, you know, thanks to my Russian buddies for enabling me to do this because of the money that she made playing in mm. Russian leagues overseas for so many years in the WNBA offseason. The money was so much better than what she was making here that it's it, it was hard for players not to go over, right? But the downside of that is that WNBA players are playing year round. A you you know talk about exhaustion, talk about risk of injury, all of that kind of stuff. Even Brianna Stewart, that happened to her. You know she blew out. I think it was her Achilles right before the WNBA regular season was supposed to start because she was playing overseas. Um, and so there's been this sort of long debate in the WNBA of how do we get players to stay stateside and how do we get them to take an off season and recover and be you know 110% ready for the WNBA season and I think Athletes Unlimited saw an opportunity to come in and say we can be that option now Athletes Unlimited is a five-week season right it's 30 games when you're talking about these players going to play overseas they're playing for four months five months six months so it's a much different um, scale and I'm sure the the pay differences and what they can earn reflect that but you know, if you're making a you kind of middle of the road salary for the WNBA and, you know, you don't need to make like an entire second salary going overseas, then perhaps this is a good option for you. And perhaps it's just enticing that you don't have to, you know, move to Russia or Turkey or somewhere else where you can just kind of go to uh, this current season is in Las Vegas, go to Las Vegas for a month and make some extra cash and not put as much strain on your body. So the mix of players they have for the first season is interesting. There's, you know, probably five or six active WNBA players, a number of retired folks. And then there are players who have been playing overseas who are like, hey, let's give this a try. See if we can get, you know, an audience in front of some American eyeballs and, you know, see what happens. It's all great news. One last question. I'll get you out of here. I'm going to put you on the spot. Your oh favorite boy. female name image likeness story so far is? Honestly, I think it's just Suni Lee. I think the restrictions that were, you know, Olympic, the Olympics put such a spotlight on so many awesome female athletes. And I think there were so many restrictions around that before, even if they could accept, you know, Olympic medal money, they couldn't do endorsement deals after that. And you saw so many folks having to make the choice like Simone Biles to not go to college and instead just turn pro right away to capitalize on that. And I think watching Suni Lee sort of have the best of both worlds, you know, and you see clips of her meets with Auburn going viral and she just seems to be really enjoying herself. But she's also able to kind of capitalize on the fame that 
she earned while she was in Tokyo. Um, and she's doing some cool deals with fashion companies. And she was obviously on Dancing with the Stars and just doing a whole slew of things that, you know, aren't necessarily gymnastics related, but the doors have opened for her because of her platform. And she now gets kind of the, like I said, the best of both worlds that no one else really could do before. She's underscore E.M. Karen on Twitter. She's a great follow. Obviously, you, you, are, <laughs> you are dialed into everything, Emily. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Anytime. Have a good one. All right. Emily does a great job for Sportico. Certainly a good Twitter follow and plenty of long form articles. Emily dives into a lot of the stuff deep, plenty of numbers, plenty of money numbers as well. So she's a great follow in terms of our audience for sure. Visit theathletic.com slash You know how that works. Get 40% off your first year subscription and plenty more. Back soon with some NFL talk for Scott Allen. My name is Mike Giannetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Trek Podcast. <laughs>